Welcome everyone to Twig 228. We have Laura here sitting down. Thank, Hello. Thank the Lord. Um, <laughs> Phil. Hi. Got, got a wicked haircut and I wish his mom would cut my hair. Um, oh, Ethan. <laughs> Ethan's here. Not, nothing to cut. <laughs> I I, I have been advised by counsel to state that I have exactly the right number of kids, and each one of them is very special. <laughs> dude, they can't be special after two, honestly, dude. You know, third and fourth one, each, it complete Each ignore. one is special and unique in their own way. Come on. All right. No way. Um, and then we have a special guest, uh, Janie, who uh, is here to, uh, I guess, give this a run, see how it goes. Um, how are you doing, Janie? I'm great. Thanks, Eric. Yeah. Let's see how this goes. Yeah. If I feel a lot of pressure today. So, you know, I got we up early. feeling the pressure. Pressure? <laughs> There's no pressure. It's like a tryout. I, it feels like I'm, I'm trying out for like a, you know, my soccer team or something today. Well, yeah. Based on your background, though, you're a sports person. Evidently, EA considers you a mobile hero. I want to be a mobile hero. Yeah, me too. Exactly. How do you become a mobile hero, Miss Janie? When you're my age and also when you're, uh, I think, um, you know, I'm a, uh, what can I say? I'm a Titan in the industry. I come from, you know, <laughs> tell us, tell well, us where you come from. What qualified you to become no, a Titan? I, of the honestly, industry? I got into mobile games because my dad made me, uh, cause my dad at the time was the CFO of, uh, a company called Sorrent, which then became glue oh, like, wow. before the iPhone. So I, ported games to Nokia devices in a closet for minimum wage for two years. Well, to like basically interned my entire college uh, for glue. And then I was like, I'm never getting into this industry. And then here I am. <laughs> what was so. your father's name? Rocky Pimentel. Oh, okay. Oh, that guy. And, and, and some of the other places you've done marketing and UA work include... Yeah. Um, uh, so just mentioned EA, um, DraftKings, Machine Zone, um, and then most recently Dapper Labs, which is a Web3 company known for Top Shot. Yeah, I have to say, like looking at your background, I mean, you've been through the ringer, right? I mean, <laughs> not only EA, DraftKings, Glue, freaking three years at Machine Zone, and now at Dapper Labs. I can't imagine that's a lot of fun, <laughs> or was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I applaud your, uh, I guess, your stamina and your uh, strength. <laughs> Thank Maybe you. You are, you are a mobile hero, right? Right. No, you, I'm a stoic. No, I'm a stoic. No experience is either good or bad. It's just experience, um, you know? I think you and I are reading the same self-help book at this, right? this yeah. exact moment. <laughs> I'm, this, is, this is actually my platform to create a spinoff of just self-help. <laughs> there we go. All right. What else do we got? Anything else going on, guys? Okay, finally saw the Super Brothers uh, movie, and it was everything the review said it would be. Beautiful, nods to old games. It was great, but definitely a weak story. Um, what I found, though, that wasn't mentioned enough was Jack Black played Bowser, which I did not realize going in, and he he carried a lot of that movie. Um, I don't want to spoil too much, but you can Google, you can Google, Google the videos if you want to see um, <laughs> what I'm talking about. I, um, we, we took our two older kids, uh, seven and and five to go see it. And the amount of joy my five-year-old son had, like made it more fun for me to watch, right? We had (laughs) to keep telling him not to talk out loud. And at the end, uh, when, when, when the credits started and other people started clapping, he started clapping and I nearly cried. If I had made it all the way through that self-help book, I would have, it would have been tears of joy, but I'm not that emotionally available yet. No, my son had the same reaction. He's like, look, it wouldn't have been nearly the same experience without, you know, the joy that you saw from the kids that were like, you know, discovering or reconnecting with all the games they played in the past. Do your your guys' kids play games with you? Like, do you, do you play video games with them? Mario Kart. No, my, my son says, get the heck out of here. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Dad, I'm playing Sniper Ghost Warrior. But then also, he'll, he'll he'll kick my ass in NBA 2K. It's not very fun for me, but I think I can p- compete with him on the shooters, maybe. No, I mean, I hope that this this adds another... Like, my kids are already asking. My kids are... Si- well, the oldest is six and, six, and she already is asking to play games with me. And I got into video games because my dad 
played video games with me. Um, so I hope that this maybe helps start that new movement again. So I had the same, the same thing happened to me. I got into it because my dad played with me, but the only thing that was different was that when I wanted to go into a career, everyone told me there's no money in that. Don't do that. That's silly. (laughs) All right. Moving on. Call of duty. All right. I think this is really interesting. I would love to hear Phil's point of view. So call of duty is basically dips their toes into the pay to win bundle, right? So it's a $12 bundle, which Really, in essence, it doesn't do much, right? But it gives you a head start on the uh, the DMZ match, and it basically gives you a a a pack and a, a optimized LMG out of the gate. So this is the first time that actually that I think I'm aware of anyway that there you're actually paying not to win, but to pay for a boost per se. So I think it's very exciting. Uh, it's something that they kind of need to do to continue to monetize, you know, to improve monetization for that franchise, but it's not going to be very popular with the rock and file call of duty players. What do you think, Phil? So I think there's another thing that's been going on in call of duty, which is they also launched an additional tier to battle pass, which is also, so I think some pretty big news in terms of revenue is one of the top sellers on steam. But if we just take a look at this example where they implemented the ability for players to buy insurance in their DMZ extraction mode. So insurance basically assumes that you're not going to have to lose some of the gear when you die. And some of these extraction shooters usually use most of your gear. And so you have the ability to buy this. It is unclear from the article about whether or not you can earn this just through gameplay. It looks like that's not the case. So this is an exclusively paid vector. And to me, I think they've actually overstepped the line here just in terms of thinking about my boss at Amazon always used to call the social contract that you have with gamers. And I do think there's kind of an unwritten monetization norms for a given franchise, for a given platform. It's very specific. It's very important to take all that contextual information in. But selling things that give you this level of gameplay advantage without the ability to grind for it seems like a violation of Call of Duty's social contract with their players. They do sell gameplay. This is what I want to emphasize. They sell gameplay in their blueprint bundles. So you can go into the Call of Duty store, you can buy a blueprint, which is a cosmetic that's paired with some attachments that make your gun better off in Call of Duty, but you also have the ability to earn those in-game. And so I think they've missed the boat on this one in terms of violating that social contract. I do think there's an opportunity for mode-segmented monetization. So we saw with FIFA Ultimate Team that you can create a different paradigm, a different set of rules, but I think this one was not segmented enough, and it also came late. It feels like it's trying to make this part of the core Call of Duty experience. So I, I actually think they they trip some lines here. So let me let me push back on that and say that we can't know whether that's true or not without the data that they have inside of Activision. Because if you go back to Ben Cousins talking about what they learned on the first Battlefield Heroes, uh, the Battlefield free-to-play games, right? There's a large, vocal, very loud contingent um, in these uh, shooters that is very allergic for pay to pay to advantage, very quick to um, call it pay to win and unacceptable. And there's a media narrative that likes writing those stories because gamers like reading them as well. But uh, they're, you know, going back uh, over 10 years uh, on the inside, what, you know, there was a GDC talk about this, like the people who were complaining about pay to win the most were the ones buying it the most. And that if you looked at people's actions and not what they were shouting on the internet, it was working. So we from the outside cannot say because of people are mad on Reddit and articles are written about how the gamers are up in fury, we don't have enough data to say this isn't working right now because we know what people are shouting on the internet, but we don't know what they're doing with their actions. I, I, I totally endorse that, but I still think that oversteps the, the role of the social contract. Like if you believe that is a important factor in designing monetization, then this feels like a clear violation of that. If you, if you don't accept this, the idea of a social contract, then yeah, sure. I mean, this this could generate well, money for them. Uh, again, it's like maybe there is a social contract, but maybe this section of the audience isn't the biggest, most important section of it, right? Like you can't do anything in a free-to-play game without people complaining and you have to figure out who to listen to and what matters for your business goals, right? I, I think that's so, fair. I, I, so the loudest people aren't right necessarily. I, they might be, they might not be. And I think in this case, they are. (laughs) I I, I think like having vertical progression as a part of monetization months after launch that's never been in the franchise is is a bizarre addition. All right. I want to put a pin in this, but 
at the end of the day, like I think yours are splitting hairs a little bit. Like I think it's basically it's it's inevitable that we start to see pay to win mechanics starting to get into these console games because they're basically at their at their at the maximum in terms of revenue they can generate from 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 stupid cosmetics, right? That's not a great model, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, unless you have scale. So it'll be interesting to see how they implement it. I think I, sorry, I, I, I'll leave it at that. I think maybe we'll, we should cover this again later when we see more and more evidence that they're going to be doing this and what the reaction, the real reaction is. But uh, Janie is going to talk about CSGO next. Okay. Um, well, CSGO and... Uh... Now, now I'm going to talk about some secondary market crypto shit, Eric. So I will uh, try to, I'll try to stay strong. Um, so I, I was, I was on LinkedIn um, and saw Chris Akavan post something about how uh, Skin on CS:GO set a record for uh, selling for 500k. Um, Chris is the chief gaming officer at Magic Eden. Um, I work with him a bit at EA uh, when he was part of the Glue acquisition. So um, good guy, but. Um, the the reason that I want to bring this up is that um, from the articles and the commentary I've been reading, people are using it as a way to, uh, as an example of this is a this is potentially a shine a beacon of hope for uh, marketplaces to be a revenue driver for games, the secondary channel that that could open up, and um, coming from the web three world and, and using marketplace revenue, uh, in your PNL and how we think about, uh, you know, managing studios and just games in general, I can tell you that it's not, it's like at most 10, five to 10% of your, of your revenue, uh, because of how marketplace royalties work. And because of if you, and it's even worse when you have an IP, like, um, you know, you could use a FIFA example or, um, uh, any, basically if you take any, any IP that you're, that you're then having to pay royalties on top of royalties for. So I wanted to, to dig in just a bit. I don't want to go too nerd on it, but, um, I want to get, you know, get some takes to take hot takes here though, too. So, so first of all, Magic Eden, I brought Magic Eden up. Magic Eden got a bunch of bullshit, uh, recently for making royalties optional, meaning that when someone buys something on the marketplace, they have the option to pay a royalty. Now, that's like, you know, maybe going on eBay and having the option to pay the eBay fee, which no one would do if you had that option. So all of these game companies got super pissed. So Magic Eden made this, this fee optional. Um, most fees are like three to 5%, like I said. So you're talking about having to, um, if you want to make 30% on top of what you usually get for in-game purchases as a publisher, you would have to four or five X your sales volume every single day consistently. And that that's like how, vi that's how viable of a, of an opportunity that is. So to me, it's like you would literally have to have 66 record breaking CSGO skins, that $500,000 skin that was just bought. You'd have to have 66 of those every single day. If you were green, a free fire if you wanted to have your marketplace or, uh, Greena has, you know, uh, their, their top, I think in-game price, uh, item is a hundred and something bucks. So that's 300, 300, uh, thousand purchases of that most expensive in-game item every single day to even have a, a, a contender, a 30% addition to what you would get from your, your main revenue channel. And it's like this fanboy commentary I'm hearing and not the practical side of the reality is that you're not going to be able to scale this thing. Like your, your first party sales are going to be how you make money. I see marketplaces like even this skin and other, and the, the way to use a marketplace as a means of just scaling content, like let users and content creators create what they want and get and have gamers buy the shit that they want and let the, let that bring in new user growth, let that be a way to get content creators. Like I would honestly have zero royalty fees. If I were, if I were using marketplace marketplaces as a growth lever, I would use it as, Hey, we don't have any royalty fees for our marketplace. You get to have hundred percent of that cut, you know, whatever you sell, like you take that. And, and that's what, I mean, that's how blur got all its business, right? Yeah. That's what started the royalty wars and, and legitimately pushed me out of uh, crypto because I'm like, Oh, my, my business strategy that I was pursuing the, the audience doesn't want it. It's not going to work. Like, 
Yeah. It's been a very effective growth growth metric to say, fuck the creators. Um, let's uh, cater to the traders. It has worked very well for Blur and probably Magic Eden as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I Yeah. It's just, uh, and, you know, coming from the Web3 world too, like you think about, okay, what does that mean for a publisher though? Like if a publisher really does want to have a marketplace and they really do want to create a revenue channel for the marketplace, then you have to limit how much content you push out there. You can't have all the swords. You can't have all the armor. You can't have all those things that, that you're adding, that you have uh, planned out that you expect sales on. You have to actually limit those things so that you, you play the market. You let the, the items in the marketplace, those values rise and you're expecting that with that that value rise that you're going to be getting revenue on the back end. So that $2 sword now becomes $15 or $20. Um, and then there's something called grail prices or grails in general. So like that $500,000 CSGO skin, that would be considered a grail, the most valuable or coveted item. And uh, if if you really do want to play the marketplace, you have to focus on grails. You don't focus on the floor price. You don't give a shit that it's a $2 floor price for your most common stuff. You have to care about the fact that like that, those skins continue to sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars and that they continue to grow, that they're, they're go up into the right, into the millions, hopefully. And so then again, you, you still, you have to limit your content even more, which then fucks your, your in-game play. So you limit amount, the amount of users that actually could get swords or that, that new users could actually get the content that they want to be able to be, even be competitive in your game. I, I thought the whole point though, was to push transaction velocity. Right, that to make it so that you're transacting constantly to keep getting the the, the fees associated with. That's in theory. Yeah. But it, you know, like say even transaction velocity. Going back to like the example of uh, let's say your FIFA for instance, and um, I'm just going to use fake numbers because I I don't want to get in trouble. So, um, that f- FIFA let's say takes a thirty percent cut um, from EA. So EA keeps seventy percent of the sale. It's like a ten dollar item. Um, so EA now is, as holding $7, um, but well, not even yet. So then you, you, you have 5% of that $7 is really what EA is taking back. So your velocity still of that $10 item needs to be multiplied. Like, and you can't have unlimited, uh, circulation. You have to have a limit. You have to create that value. It's like trading cards, you know? Uh, your, even your base set, your commons will never go above, you know, a certain amount. Like you don't see on eBay common trading cards going above like 25 cents, even for like the, the big guys, you know, like you're, you're not, you're not like, because there's no cap and you can the, produce the math doesn't work, you Eric. like you, you don't have enough velocity and you don't have enough volume. So then, like you, the, then what is off the, this? So does the ownership economy even make sense at all? That, then I, I don't think so. Like if I, you if you can't win on this, then you have to win on first party sales, right? But first party sales is just a disaster, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just I would agree. <laughs> inflationary. I, I mean, so so to summon the the Ethan of uh, let's call him twelve months ago, um, if you are concerned about revenues now. Uh, you are not looking at a long enough time horizon and investing in a long enough time horizon, right? Like, uh, well, you if the, can no. if you can replicate the unending growth and popularity with limited supply of a Magic: The Gathering. Um, Twenty years from now, your daily uh, royalty revenue, assuming royalty still exists, is going to look fucking killer. Right. It's no, a, no, no. I, it, it's I, not. I think people it's chase not, it's not what Jamie's saying. I think what Jamie's saying I'm, is that the unit economics don't work. Right. I, I, I don't think trading. they work now, but they can work over a much longer time horizon. Right. No. I'm, the, I agree with her presently. This is like skills. Like the unit economics don't work. So therefore the game, the company doesn't work. You know, like type thing. This is like, this is like model busting. Right. I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, Jamie. I am speaking for, I don't want to speak for you, but. But is is what you're saying is the unit economics don't work for this, so therefore it's the unit, not scalable. Yeah, they don't they don't work for this. There, you know, there's this promise of uh, royalties in perpetuity, which is what Ethan is saying, right? Or at least, hopefully, I'm summarizing it. There, the problem though is that there's no motivation to continue to move that item around. Right. Like you would right. have to move that item consistently for years to come. So that that item, like 20 years from now, if that thing's just sitting on the marketplace, you're not getting the the royalty from that. 
This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly, completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them, they know their data. Head to appsflyer.com slash benchmarks now for more info. All right, moving on. Jason, uh, Joseph Staten, Staten, sorry. He joins Netflix from Microsoft. So this is the guy we were talking about that left 343 that had been there for a long, 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 long time. He's joining Netflix to build some creative, really cool thing for Netflix, evidently. Now, personally... I am very excited about this because I think it's what's interesting is to see what a creative mind can come up with in this platform. Now, the platform clearly has its limitations given this different install base, no consistent controls across the different ways of playing on Netflix. But the fact is that he's a really creative guy and he can create cool shit, right? And there's a lot of other creatives that are coming over there from Scopely and from other places that I think are all trying to do the same thing. They're clearly investing crap tons of money because someone like this guy is worth gajillions right so like so they're 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 making a go at it and i really do believe it's gonna be really interesting to see what they can do and to be clear what netflix has said is that they basically are trying to find games that engage players without relying on the predatory free-to-play monetization design right and so someone like joseph is a great is a perfect creator to build something like this because he's that's probably after all the frustration and terrible uh, management at Microsoft on on the Halo franchise and all that stuff. I'm sure he just wants to be creative and he doesn't want to like be hamstrung by all this live ops and nonsense. And so he's going to be able to, in theory, create something amazing. So um, I'm I'm kind of excited to see what it has. Him, he's getting out of the console grind. He can actually do what he wants to do, do what he loves, and see if there's any success there. And we'll know within the next three to five years, you know about. Um, you think he's going to launch a game in three to five years? I think so. I, I'd put it closer to the five than the three. <laughs> I mean, they well, want to build from scratch a new AAA team and AAA game. Like this well, is a the, this game is coming out five years from now. That's their closed beta. All right, if well, they're lucky, I'll, I'll keep moving the goalposts like the venture capitalists. Right? <laughs> um, all right, what else? I'm oh. just excited to keep playing the too hot to handle Netflix game that I keep seeing on my on my screen. For, Forty seven in the game. download charts. <laughs> I think <Fucking> ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, Monster Hunter. All right. Monster Hunter. Um, Niantic and Capcom announced a partnership for I'll call it a Monster Hunter Go game. Um And if you were listening a couple weeks ago when we talked about the mega success of Hogwarts Legacy and why Harry Potter Go didn't work, we talked about different Niantic games, and I wrote a whole essay about the core fantasy of the franchise and like what players are looking for and why Harry Potter wasn't a fit for the Go model. 
Monster Hunter is a perfect fit for the goal model. Like this, this is, I actually, uh, when I saw this headline, not only was my first thought, this game is going to be a fucking monster. It was like, how did I not, how did I not say this in the past 24 months? Like, this is so obvious. Um, this game is going to kill, in my opinion. It's a perfect fit for Go. And also, it's it's the type of game that if you're out here in the West, you might not really respect how big Monster Hunter is in Japan and how much revenue. Like, you can have, as I say over and over, a billion-dollar game like King of Fighters All-Stars that that barely makes a dent out here. And so, like... We might look at this 24 months from now or whenever it launched and go like, eh, it's doing fine. And th- this game, it's going to be like Dragon Quest Walk. It's going to kill in Japan. Yeah, I'll agree. I think it's going to do well in Japan. I question whether it's going to do in the West, well in the West. They um, found a thesis. Good for them. Find, <laughs> find a collection IP, fi- find some location-based technology, throw the two together. Let's just, let's get Nike on board. I don't know what's taking them so long. <laughs> well, no, I mean like n- Nike the shoes. I, of course. Well, but like, again, like Monster Hunter is about an open world where different rare monsters with cool shit on them appear at different times. And each one has like a different strategy. You need to kill it. This is a perfect fit for Pokemon Go. It's not a collection, though. It's not a collection game, though, really. I mean, you're well, but I don't don't want to get too deep in this. I think I agree with you. It's going to do well in Japan. Monster Hunter is absolutely massive. Monster Hunter had a lot of success in the West with the with the last console game. I think it's going to be a tougher sell because I think Pokemon's a better fit, but we will see. I'm bullish on this game, though, for the record. All right, Supercell. Eight so we had Deconstructor Fun. Is- yes. our, our own Deconstructor Fun published an article, Eight Things Supercell is Doing to Level Up. I think it echoes a lot of the comments we have. Eric, we've been going back talking about this company. The one I would like to highlight is that they have an engine. I don't think that's gotten a lot of limelight, but they've been building an internal engine, a supercell engine. From the article, it looks like only Clash Mini, which was based out of China, or excuse me, um, Clash Quest, which is their MMO that's not out yet, is using Unreal. But the other titles have been using the centralized engine. I don't think that's a small footnote. I think that's a really big footnote. And I would have a public challenge to the world's smallest CEO. Supercell is about to bureaucratize and centralize. When you have a central piece of technology like that, and I saw this with Frostbite, that means you have a central team with a roadmap for that piece of technology and other teams are going to submit requests to that central team. And so the question is, is who's going to respond to what team? Who gets priority? Who gets to choose priority? And when you have things like that, you start to see politics emerge. They also have taken on new roles like a chief game officer. And this was someone who was the lead on Clash of Clans, a really brilliant individual. But again, that's like another central role overseeing all of the different projects inside of Supercell. I, I think it's time to get rid of this claim of being the world's smallest CEO. I don't think that's what Supercell needs. And it doesn't seem clear to me that even Ilka thinks that's what Supercell needs right now. They need a stronger CEO. They need a CEO to help sell to set direction and like take Supercell into this new world of bureaucracy. And I, I use that term for efficiency, not for inefficiency. It's going to be more division of labor, but they've got to figure this stuff out. <laughs> And they got to do it in a supercell way. Dude, we're going to really piss off the people in Helsinki today. I can tell already. No, you always kiss the ring with supercell. And I, I love this article did this. You got to kiss the ring. They are unbelievable <laughs> in terms of success. But they, it, next chapter. Dude, we're not going to be invited to slush though, you know? All right. From one Helsinki company to another, <laughs> we're talking about the Sega acquisition of uh, Rovio for close to what 775 billion dollars or is it i can't even remember if it's euros million, or dollars million all right well million in us dollars yeah, in yeah, our yeah. fine american dollars so what is clear to me here is that it is very clear that rovio did not want to be bought by Playtica right? because they didn't get that much money much more money right and so this was clearly um a better deal from their perspective um again this is another classic of two drunks holding each other up, right? It's not clear, not as cut and dry as Unity Iron Source, where they were both completely wasted. This is like more Rovio's had about six beers and Sega's had about 12, right? So for Sega, they've had very, very little success on mobile or console for that matter. They've been pretty much flatlined for a decade at this point. Um, the only game in their mobile arsenal that really matters is Hatsudi Miko. It's like a ri- rhythm game in in Japan, which is like 90% of the revenues in Japan, 
and it's about 70% of their in-app purchases, according to Sensor Tower. Now, of course, the rest of their business is primarily Sonic games. And if you look on, if you look at look them up, it's like literally like a dozen different Sonic games with all kinds of different executions around Sonic, right? They download a gajillion. I mean, they literally download a billion downloads, right? But they make no money, right? So they've they, not they mo- not monetized their biggest IP on on, on in-app purchases. They, I'm sure they do pretty well on advertising, but that's yeah, not Yeah, I, I was going to say, it's not yeah, captured yeah. in sensor time. No, no. And, right. And then advertising, that's where all the revenue is coming from for mobile, pretty much, I would imagine. But that's, you know, no one wants to do that, right? Why would you want to do that? Is it mice nuts? It is mice nuts. I think it's mice nuts. It is mice nuts. It is mice nuts. <laughs> it is not scaling their business is what, I'm, what I would say. They've been basically flatlined for over a decade as their video game business as a whole. Their stock hasn't moved. Like it's just not been a good investment at Sega. Um, the value of Rovio was like 2.22 times revenue, 13 times EBIT. Not a terrible valuation, a little steep given kind of the futures of the market. But I still believe that Rovio is in a really good position from a from a from an IP perspective, um, and particularly in the Apple global mobile recession, um, where where brands I think are going to be more and more important. So um, now, even on the Rovio side, right, this is you know a far cry from their valuation that they expected when they went public. Right at the time, they expected to be like a two billion dollar valuation, as they were like I think they had the movie going and, and they were still really pop popular back then. They went public in 2016 at a $1.1 billion valuation. So seven years later, getting $775 million is a very, very bad result for shareholders. I mean, at the end of the day, you could put money under your mattress and do better as an investment over that period of time. Um, for Sega, I think they get a Western developer for relatively reasonable price with an amazing IP. Um, my, my only real concern here is there's absolutely no synergies here. Not at all, right? This creates in in essence a western developer arm for sega um you know an independent firm in helsinki to build games for the west uh and i imagine they're hoping that they're going to be able to leverage the sega ip uh and use robio's teams to build that um but i don't know it doesn't seem that interesting right um and the other thing is culture right i just can't remember a time in which anyone said oh i love working for a japanese company like it's so awesome right uh japanese companies are very man- managed very centrally right even sony to this day whose majority of their business i think it's like 70 or 80 percent of their business in north america and europe they still have to kiss the ring in japan you know to get anything done it's crazy right um at sega it was particularly bad from my understanding you're basically dealing with different like contingents within the organization the console developers uh the ip holders the and the mobile professionals are three separate like you know uh, fiefdoms, right? And then you have the management layer on top, and there's always conflict between them because the publishers want to make sure their consoles or games are doing well. The IPs want to make sure the integrity and the sanctity of their brands, and the mobile game makers want to make money on mobile, right? But and then the corporate somewhere on the top creating all kinds of drama, right? So these three groups can never align because ultimately they want to make as much money for the console business as possible. So they use I, they use mobile as a marketing vehicle, which is exactly what they've been doing for the last like five years with with the with their Sega with the Sega IP. So in essence, this is what is likely going to happen. Sorry, Mr. Rovio. Lewis, I love you, but this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna give their biggest IP, Sonic, to Rovio to try to build a successful game of it. A game that monetizes, right? Which is something that Rovio is struggling with, just generally speaking as well. Um, they may it might be impossible to get approvals from these IP holders in Japan. And this will create this absolutely infuriating approval loop that will ultimately leave Rovio developers completely frustrated and unable to move forward with any type of proper game design because they're constantly trying to get approvals from these IP holders that don't want anything to do with mobile, right? So overall, I just think this deal is a little bit meh, right? It solves potential issues for Sega. They expand in the West a little bit. They get some decent engines and bodies at Rovio. But it doesn't solve the fundamental issues at Rovio, in which they haven't really leveraged their IP to the fullest um, over the last, like, you know, what seven years since they went public. Um, so that's kind of my my hot take. Uh, anyway, Janie, what do you think? I mean, outside of like potentially what could happen with mobile, do you see do you see any motivations on 
you know, I look at like what Riot has done with Netflix in terms of Arcane. I look at, you know, even the new Mario's brother movie and um, Last of Us and all that. Like, do you think that Sega, uh, well, Rovio wanted to be the next Disney and couldn't couldn't get there. Do you think that this is motivated by any of any of those things going on in the market? <sighs> Are you pitching a prestige Vector Man streaming series? Because I've got my scripts ready. I've got Vector Man's ready to come back. Oh my everyone. god! Just stop! Just stop with your fanboy <laughs> bullshit, dude. So, like, the the reality of it is, I I don't know if the Angry Birds franchise is really that strong to you know build like a movie empire. I mean, they had what one or two movies, right? Um, I don't know. I don't know if their IP is that strong. Well, and th- and then the problem. This is like off script, but the problem with Sega is that their 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 IP is no longer relevant, right? Because they've done so poorly at managing it. Like I don't know how relevant it is with the uh, with the people, even though the movie Sonic. did really well. I guess with this, at least the shows for, do well too. Yeah. Uh, Sonic's I mean, never been unpopular. There's yeah, I guess always Sonic, been Sonic is one unique thing, but the rest of their IPs are just completely dormant because they haven't done anything with them in a decade you know it, it's so. the same rovio problem ironically enough though it's like what if we add sonic to this would this make this better <laughs> like that seems to be their yeah. their only play right and that's why it's two drunks holding each other up because they're both kind of in a tough spot and and i don't know if the two of them can they may be able to hold each other up but that doesn't mean that they're gonna all both they're gonna thrive right uh they don't thrive independently they don't they don't thrive together necessarily do you do you think that sorry my last my last question for this um do you do you think that um like it's trendy right now for bigger games companies i don't know if it's because of the recession or because ua is terrible right now but um to like go back in the archives like go to these dead brands and do you think that rovio like could be could help with like bringing back some of the like the legacy you know, Ugh. titles and things like that. Maybe, but you know, they, they, they don't have limitless development cap- capacity, right? They got to work on what makes sense and Sonic makes sense. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. possible. It's possible. I mean, Oh, by the way, structurally, which I didn't mention is that once Playtika put a deal, a, a bid out there. And I think we talked about this on the podcast before they were kind of like s- somewhat stuck. I mean, they could probably maintain their independence, but I bet there's a lot of pressure for them to sell. And so they were basically looking for a better better place to go. Like, I think they felt that Playtika would just kind of destroy them the way they did seriously. Um, that, that studio, they shut that down. So anyway, I think that's likely why this deal was done. Not because of some, like, perceived, you know... <laughs> I mean, I'm being very flippant about this because, of course, there are synergies. But I don't think these synergies were really contemplated as much as the fact that they just kind of needed to get a deal done. Um, would be my guess, right? You know, sorry, I'm not going to go. With, that's all I'll say on that one. But um, yeah. Anyway, the, the, I, the IPs other than Sonic that Sega publishes successfully, which I'd say are like uh, Persona, Shin Megami oh, Tensei, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yakuza. These are not uh, IPs that uh, Rovio is equipped to help with. Right? Like they're not bringing Yakuza or Persona to mobile successfully. And I want to be 100% clear on this. These IPs are beloved, right? I'm not suggesting yeah. that these IPs are not beloved by the gamers, but they are right. not mass market IPs. They have not done anything with them to expand beyond exactly. the cult following that these these things have, Persona in particular. And, oh shoot, I forgot the name of it. But the, the, the MMO that they- Tensei? What was the MMO? Oh, Fantasy Star. Fantasy, Fantasy Star. Star's doing well. Dude, how in the fuck can they screw that up? Dude, that was like <laughs> the original- Fucking MMO. It was the original free-to-play monster. And people yeah. still play it, right? But yet yet they've done nothing. I mean, nine out of ten people in the gaming community wouldn't even know what that game is, you know? So anyway, they, they've just Fantasy mismanaged Fantasy Star themselves. Online 2. Look it up. Recent changes in the app stores are boon to mobile game developers. Now you can sell in-game items and currencies with big savings on transaction fees. And Exola just added three new features to their web shop for mobile game solution to help you level up your monetization practices outside the app stores. The three solutions are subscriptions, analytics, and promotions. Now, subscriptions are a smart add to your mobile revenue strategy. They boost game revenue with predictability while maintaining a lawyer user base. Analytics give you data 
and data has become fuel on which modern society runs. If you don't know your players, you won't know what they want or how to get them to click that buy button. Analyze your data so you can create critical piece of the purchasing puzzle. Finally, promotions allow you to easily reach out to opt-in players via email or Discord and other channels to bring them to your web shop on your website. You'll be able to generate new sales and keep more profit. To find how to get started, visit exola.pro slash mobile or go to the link in this podcast description. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fun really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. What do we got? I was going to cover two games, but I can um, I can cut it down to just Monopoly Go. No, do both. Jumping from well, one one thing about Rovio, I did want to mention. I, I I think I'm a little bit more positive on this because I don't think it's you have a company that uh, I think Will Luton put it best. I can't take credit for this credit. But I can't take credit for this idea. But you have a company like Sega that has that has found a way to make Sonic still relevant. And then you have a, a Angry Birds, which has been around for, what, since 2009, I think they started, maybe a little bit later, 2012. Um, and there's more to be said about finding someone that I think that a partner that knows how to kind of cherish, cherish a franchise and then still still keep it relevant to this day. And I think that, from the Rovio standpoint, would, would be good because they Angry Birds is also, is I mean... It, it's beloved. We saw what happened when they re-released the old classic game. It started to cannibalize the the new games. So, I, don't know, I think I'm a little bit more positive um, about what will what will happen next, and I think I'm more open to them trying new possibilities of either uh, finding ways to keep both of them relevant. Anyway, my two cents. Will Will Luton put it better? I think it was quoted on MobileGame.biz, um, and so I was a little bit more positive on this on this deal. Okay. Two games I want to cover. Still covering a little bit of uh, Finnish companies. There's there's two there's two new games out that I thought were worth mentioning. One is Makeover Match by Tactile, and the other is obviously uh, Monopoly Go by Scopely. And the reason I covered them together is both of those games. Um, I think to understand them, you need to also have a good understanding of the original game they're looking to improve. So Makeover Match. It's, you need to understand Magic Tavern's Project Makeover, and for Monopoly Go, it would be Coin Master. I think both of these plays are are movements to imp- to take and have an improvement on an established success, and it's it's tough to say. I, I don't I can't say whether or not they'll do better than the original because, uh, and I think Supercell touches on this a little bit in their article, or rather, Deconstructor Fund touches on this in the in the Supercell article that I don't think success is necessarily tied to quality. You could make a objectively fundamentally better game in terms of design, USP, and art, and it still may never, never overtake the original. Um, if you if you want to be a hit, you really need to push to be a genre pioneer. I think it is incredibly difficult to make a hit these days if you're going for, uh, for improvements and one-ups. Um, but again, there's multiple ways to create a business making games and generating hits is one way, which is what Supercell's done. But you can also create a great games business making games outside the top 10 or the top 25 because those are still those are still very big games. So 
makeover match for Tactile. It released September 2022. It was super small, um, super small initially, about 2,000 downloads per day. And then this past month, it looks like Tactile's uh, prepping themselves for a larger KPI and or monetization test as they bumped up from uh, 2K today, 2K per day downloads to about a 40K burst, including the US. So very quick on Tactile. It, it's been around for a while. It's founded in 2009, based in Copenhagen. And it's one of the, the few remaining studios that is not sold to a larger entity. I would, I would have put Rovio in this category too, um, but now it's, it's really, it, there's not many and one of them is Tactile. And it's not because it's not attractive to buy. I'm, I'm fairly confident they've had a lot of suitors. They just have not been for sale. Um, they started releasing games about five years after starting in 2014, and they have actually released a game in almost every casual subgenre: an endless runner, linkers, bubble shooter, and they lean into super quirky, fun characters. So Cookie Cats, one of their old game, has a feline barbershop quartet. It was, it was very cute. Um, but notably, Tactile is known for Lily's Garden and Penny and Flo. Uh, most of their revenue still comes from Lily's Garden. Uh, its heyday was from launch in 2018 through the end of 2020, after which it seems to, it declines a bit, and then now it seems to have stabilized from the summer. Um, so this, this puts them in the position where they have money in their coffers, but a new game wouldn't hurt, and I think this is where the stage is set for a makeover match. For those that haven't played it, it's a makeover-themed game, episodic content. Each episode is a person to make over, room to design, and it's attached, um, and the core mechanic is a 3D puzzle. There's a caveat to this, though. The game is huge uh, by feature standard, and it's 3D. So they have must have been working on this game for quite some time. It's similar to Project Makeover. The biggest change they made were the improvements to the Match 3 core. Um, they added some more customization to the makeover aspect, more narrative, there's a bigger backstory, and a secondary game engine, which, which is the, the caveat, which is uh, based off of Triple Match 3D. If I were to wager what this USP was, I would say it is, how do you take a makeover game, add an improved puzzle in a simplified economy? Um, and then that would, be, that would be my take. So how is it going to do? I think it's, it's a strong makeover game. They took what worked from Project Makeover, added a better puzzle. It's a bit narrative heavy. That's not going uh, to appeal to all players. But for the players that stick it through, uh, stick through the narrative, the, the puzzles are solid. So I think with optimization as they go through this test, um, it, it could, it, I think it'll outperform Penny and Flow. I'm not sure if it'll surpass Lily's Garden. Again, um, message above, it could be a fundamentally better game, but it, it is very hard to move um, games that have been in the market for a very long time. How's the, um, how's the fun factor? I mean, I, I kind of, I stopped following match three a couple years ago when I moved off a project, but in my, in my mind, Royal match is like king of the genre in terms of moment to moment fun. And I would put tune blast below it. And that was, you know, those might be outdated. I don't know if those are still kind of the two most fun uh, match or match adjacent games, but how, how does the moment to moment uh, stack up against um, uh, those, those uh, killer games? I would agree. I think Royal Match has probably the most solid core, most fun core. The only thing I would change, I think Homescapes is um, from, from match three switcher, Homescapes is quite high as is um, I, I consider the original, the original strongest core was Candy Crush Soda. They, mm -hmm. they really, they moved the genre forward. Um, it's good. They just, they have the right level of difficulty. I think they're, they're leading the, the right amount of obstacles, the right combinations. There's, there's some improvements they can certainly make. Um, but I think this, it, it's a strong game. I mean, okay. if I was going to change anything, I would, I would have the clothing. I would actually go back and change some of the clothing art to make the, right. uh, the outfits match a little bit better. So it sounds like the gameplay alone isn't going to be, and, and probably in this genre in general, I can't think of the gameplay alone ever being enough of a di differentiator to, to draw organic downloads. So does it, is kind of what you're saying that, hey, this game is good and its success level depends on A, its marketability, and then B, long-term uh, monetization. Is that accurate? Yes. I would, the reason I'm a little bit bullish is I think makeover games are strongly marketable. Mm -hmm. You have a lot you can do. One, they're great to make ads for. Um, yeah. and, and two, people love it. So 
strong puzzle and good marketable theme. It's executed well. I, 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 I'm positive on it. I'm positive on it. But yeah. it's let's see what they do when they start when they start reacting to some of this data coming in. Got it. So the the makeover, the narrative, these things both give solid hooks to market on that aren't just uh, another match three. I, yes, I would say yes. Awesome. And then last one, Monopoly Go. Sorry. Yeah. Tell tell us about tell us about this game that uh, the the Saudi Arabian government just bought for five billion dollars. <laughs> so this everyone. So this is the game everyone's talking about. I think that the, the the market, the industry, everyone is super excited about this release. And to be fair, it's for good reason. The game looks pretty good. Uh, my guess that the burning questions are one: Is it going to overtake CoinMaster? And two. How is it going to sit in Scopely's portfolio? Um, so right now, Scopely's strongest non-midcore games are Yahtzee and Solitaire. And I ballparked it based with data AI and a little bit of fun magic. Um, Yahtzee's probably combined 90 million. Solitaire is combined probably 105. This is IAP and in-app ads. Very rough, um, rough math on that. Um, for those that haven't played it, Monopoly Go, I would say, if you start with CoinMaster, you add the Monopoly IP, get rid of the slot the slot machine mechanic, the slot wheel, and replace it for a game board, and then expand on the progression mechanic. Um, so add in more progression that CoinMaster doesn't have that unlocks variety, unlocks deeper gameplay, and then a whole bunch of quality of life improvements. I think that you have, you have a solid game that's Monopoly Go. So it's rolling, rating, collecting, and building. Um, and what I like about it is they're starting from a place they can expand. And this is what Scopely is really good at. So they, there's a lot of features they can add in. They can add in the pets or the helpers that you see in CoinMaster. They can, they can do a whole lot with the progression rewards. That, that is a whole vector which they can explore and monetize, and monetize further. And that board, just like you can probably add more things to the slot wheel, you can add more functionality to the board they have. They do live ops well. They're already in there. So... Um, I took a look. If I look at their revenue per download across their social casino games esque games, um, Monopoly goes co- is coming in pretty strong. Um, and if they, re- you know, again, if they re- look at the data, they respond appropriately, build out live ops and features. I think this could be one of their strongest games by revenue for in their portfolio. My guess is that it will surpass Yahtzee and Solitaire. Um, the big question is, will it displace CoinMaster? And I. I got to be honest. I don't think this was their goal. I don't think they they came in thinking we're gonna we're gonna push Coinmaster out of the top top position. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I don't know. I feel like I, my guess is that they were aiming to take market share. They were like, there's there's something here. We have this IP will make this us be able to grow organically. We can reduce. We can just um, we can just costs. And there's there's something that we can add to the market. And there's this. We can obviously it, take it's, care from it's Scrabble. That's, they they had the same thing for Scrabble going after Words with Friends, right? Like they just see someone who's collecting fat paychecks and no one's competing and they can bring the IP to the table. Like this is a unique scopely USP is to go out and get those deals done. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think this can absolutely take Cone Master. Why not? I'm sure the ambition yeah. inside of Scopely I'll, I'll and the product team not. wants that. I'll, I'll tell I you why the ambition's not. there. Yeah. Okay. This is, this is why. <laughs> February 21 coinmaster two billion dollars in iap revenue there is no that was two years ago there's no overtaking that there is no way that a game will overtake that lead especially not with the license fee of monopoly right so they can take a dent out of their current performance but coinmaster is going down in the hall of fame as one of the most revenue generating mobile games of all time there's no way to overcome that ever Moon Active has destroyed. No, that's fair, but there's there's different ways to win. Like I'm sure they'll make a shit ton of money. I think they can overtake CoinMaster in terms of revenue for the year or revenue on a monthly basis or player base, anything that's a little bit more recent. I think they totally have a shot at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um sorry, Laura. We we interjected. No, that that's that's totally fine. Um I, I would just wrap up by saying I'm super excited. I think the game, I mean, I've been playing it quite a bit. I put a five-hour timer, so I knew when to come back to get my <laughs> yeah, my dies refreshed. It's got you. Um, it's <laughs> so kudos, major kudos to Scopely for the for launching it. Yeah. I, I haven't played yet, but I mean, just if you just look at the track record of how well they did over time with Yahtzee, 
right? Like, you know, unbelievable. That the, you know that wherever they are right now is just the start. Mm-hmm. They, they have all the knowledge and people and capabilities to keep growing off this strong base. Um, I haven't played it yet. I've, I've played coin master uh, pretty extensively, or I did uh, again, maybe 18 months, two years ago. Um, so it sounds like you're rolling dice instead of spinning the slot reel. Um, I was curious if they have, for me, the, the, the magic of coin master is where you choose how much energy that you're spending per pull of the slot machine. And that as your cap, how much energy you have in the bank increases, they actually unlock um, more multiplier tiers. So you can go up to spending when I was last playing it, a hundred energy in, in a, a second and a half. Right. And so like this, this coin master is very generous with energy and then super fulfilling when you're like, Oh, I'm going to turn on the hundred X button, put it on auto spin, and I'm going to spend $500 worth of energy in the next 30 minutes. Right. Like it's actually a super gratifying experience and you can get there as a free player. So um, with all that context, does Yahtzee Go have that uh, element of it that I think is part of the magic that that uh, energy choose your multiplier to basically you choose how much uh, how many cents you're spending per second and that uh, directly multiplies the reward you get out. So. It, it, Monopoly Go does. I don't know about Yahtzee Go, but Monopoly Go does have that functionality. So you, right now, I think I the most I was able to spend was five times um, because the the amount of of rolls I get is not does not quite match how many spins I get in Coin Master. So they just have, and I think that's more of a balancing thing. But um, they may get there. Uh, but I they do have that functionality, and I imagine they would expand it as the game as as they build more content for the game. All right. Anybody else? Any other thoughts on uh, Monopoly Go? I, yeah, I think, I, I think it's a long game here. I don't, I don't think they'll pass Coin Master on a daily basis or or get close to that. But I do see this having legs. I think to both Lauren Phil's points, like the I've only gotten to like I'm almost past past London or England or whatever the the net, that location is. But it, what's cool too is like you can just stare at the board and be pretty entertained too. Like you see like the queen like in her little hat and stuff walking around the board and there's a hell of a lot more to to even just watch rather than than constantly be spinning like you do on Coin Master that I think there's some legs there too that it might not be as direct as Coin Master in terms of how you get all the revenue. But I think the time spent in the game will be a lot higher. I think that there's there's just... A, a few more metrics that I think that they'll, they'll have uh, some deeper play. And I'm, I'm hopeful too, that they're going to add some of those layers so that I'm not, I'm not in and out as much as I am with coin master where like I'm spinning and I'm like, okay, I'm going to peace out because I I'm out of spins and there's nothing else to do right now. Um, so I dig it. I was a little bit skeptical at first. Like this is kind of weird. And then as I started playing it, then I, I noticed that I was, I got pretty into it. The only yeah. other weird thing is that they, they call like there's an iron lady thing in the London one. And I'm like, and it, but it's like a picture of the Eiffel tower. <laughs> so I'm like, I was like, uh, I mean, I did pass history and, and geography classes, but this doesn't feel like it should be there, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're dinging it for uh, geographic and historical inaccuracy. Correct. Uh, I will write a letter to Javier at Scopely, letting him know. <laughs> Just write it, write it in Jira bug format. <laughs> Phil, I'm going to write a you? bug. Uh, yeah, yeah, a geo bug. I'm going to send one in. Uh, Phil? Nothing else for me. I I, uh, I I bet against you, though. I think in a post-IDFA world, you got an IP like this, and you got LTVs from Social Casino. I, uh, I, I'll i give this one a year, and I think it uh, it overtakes daily revenue on CoinMaster. All right. Well, uh, All right. we'll we'll let King Cress uh, keep the scorecard and and come back to us and and rant about us. Not whoever got it wrong. So, Janie, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, quick round Great of snaps you. for Janie. Hey, thanks for showing thanks up. Thanks for letting me come on. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was great. All right, Twiggies. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode.
If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.